Good morning. Glad to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, find your way to Jonah chapter 4. We're in a series in the Minor Prophets this year. It's going to take us a little while, but we're only taking like three weeks per book. And so uh, we're finishing our three weeks in Jonah today with Jonah chapter 4. Find your way there. Next week, we're going to start Amos. And oh, man, Amos has some things to say. Uh, So we'll talk about it next week. But today, Jonah chapter 4. And I want to start uh, this study with a question. Why is it that all-knowing God seems to ask so many questions in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we, we all would say God is omniscient, meaning He knows all the things. So why is it on the second page of our Bible, you have God shouting out into the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, where are you guys? Like, He didn't know they're right there behind the bush. He knew that. But he's asking a question, and it just gets worse from there. The Old Testament is full of God asking people, like, really hard questions. And then you get to the New Testament, where Jesus, God incarnate, comes to earth, Son of God, and he asks so many questions, it's almost annoying. Some people get annoyed with him. They're like, just tell us the answer. And he doesn't do that. Why? Why is God like that? I recently read a social science study uh, by a man named Joseph Grenny, who's a brilliant social scientist, uh, that maybe sheds a little bit of light on this. Joseph Grenny and his team decided to test which was better at motivating human change, telling people information or asking them questions. So they devised what I think is just a diabolically clever test. They wanted to test it with something that was objectively very hard. So they decided to test how do we motivate people to change in the area of smoking, which is notoriously a difficult behavior to change, right? Like to quit smoking is very hard. Uh, So what they did is they found a place in public where people smoke and they hired two 10-year-old boys to approach the people smoking and they had two different approaches. So the first approach was this. The 10-year-old boys would walk up to the smokers and they would say, hey, do you know that smoking is very bad for you? And they would give them some facts about how bad smoking is for you. And then they would try to hand them a pamphlet of information about how to quit smoking. What do you think happened? What do you think? 90% of the smokers wouldn't even take the pamphlet. Like if a 10-year-old boy walked up to me right now with a piece of paper in his hand, I would take it. Like Like in 90%, when they were presented with information and offered help on the problem, refused to even take it. This is something that we need to keep in mind when we start trying to tell people about Jesus and offer help right? Maybe this is why when Jesus showed up, he wasn't like, hey, everyone, I'm the savior of the world. Um, I don't know if you know that. Now you know that. I'm here to help you. Let me help you, right? Like maybe that's why that wasn't his approach. Because when you look at it from a scientific perspective, telling someone what is true and offering to help is surprisingly ineffective when it comes to real life change. So Grinney had a second idea. Uh, same 10-year-old boys in an area where people were smoking, probably different smokers at this point, and he would send these 10-year-old boys up to the smokers, and he would ask them to ask two questions. Now, here's what he did. He gave them an unlit cigarette, and these 10-year-olds walked up to the smokers, and their first question was, can I have a light? 
Diabolical, right? Diabolical, because what do you think happened? I don't know what you're saying to me, but I'll tell you. What happened was no one lit the kids' cigarettes mercifully. Like this restores your faith in humanity. And not only that, most of the smokers started lecturing the 10-year-old boys on how bad smoking is for them. So the smokers are like, you don't want to smoke. Smoking is horrible for you. And they're the ones who are starting to convince the boys never to smoke in their life. And so then Granny said, here's your second question, boys. I want you to, at the end of that lecture, just ask, if you care so much about me, what about you? What do you think happened? 90% of the smokers took the pamphlet, not only took the pamphlet, most of them promised the boys, I'm going to try to quit. And there's statistical evidence to suggest that in the days that follow, that one of the things that was in the pamphlet was a, a quit line, that, that a significant number of the smokers that the boys talked to called the quit line and tried to quit smoking because of the questions that these boys asked. Isn't that clever? I mean, just diabolically so. It's interesting, though. Maybe this is why in our four short Gospels, the Gospel writers record Jesus asking 307 questions. He's always asking questions. Stuff like, what are you looking for? Where's your faith? Why did you doubt? What do you, or who do you say that I am? What do you want me to do for you? Do you see this woman? You know, you read this about Jesus, and you're like, why is he asking so many questions? And then you go to the Old Testament, and you read about God the Father, and you're like, oh, he gets it from his dad, because God is that way too. Now, I think there's a lot of different reasons to ask questions. What I want to suggest is there's something surprising about God that we are going to see in this last chapter of Jonah, is that God uses questions to serve us, telling us what is true is far less helpful than inviting us to be curious about truth. And I think that's the purpose of God's questions, is He is inviting our curiosity. And if you've read ahead into chapter 4, you know where I'm going with this. God is going to ask Jonah three, cha- uh, three questions in the chapter, and then the entire book of Jonah is going to end with a question mark. God asks a question, and it never gets answered. It's like hanging out there for all eternity. And what I think is happening in that moment is God is inviting Jonah and inviting us as His people to be curious about some truths instead of just telling us what is true. And it's powerful. Let me catch this up. Jonah chapter 4, beginning of Jonah, God tells Jonah, go prophesy to like your worst enemy, the the people you hate the most, go prophesy to them. And Jonah's like, no. And he runs from God, he gets swallowed by a fish, and he says, fine, fine, fine. I guess I would rather do what you ask than drown, if those are the options. So fine, I'll do it. Um, So he goes and he prophesies to Nineveh, and they listen. Despite the messenger, they listen and they turn to God and they say, maybe I'll be compassionate. And God's like, I will be compassionate. And he spares their city. That's where we pick up Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I just knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. Just take it away for it's better for me to die than to live. That's a fascinating section of Scripture. <laughs> uh, what's fascinating is Jonah is shouting this in anger to God. I mean, like, this could make a beautiful pallet wood sign in your dining room, couldn't it? <laughs> Gracious and compassionate God abounding in love. Paint that on some wood and hang it up, right? But, like, when Jonah says that, he is shaking with rage. Isn't that so human? We all love the gracious and compassionate God abounding in love when He's abounding in love to us. But this idea that God is also compassionate to our enemies, that's a little bit harder to accept. I mean, maybe we should put that on a pallet wood sign. God loves the people I hate. Put that in your dining room, right? You know? Might not sell as well, but um, Jonah is just furious about this. So God steps in with his first question to serve Jonah. He says, verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be so angry? Fair question, right? Kind question. That's a very kind question considering just how disrespectful Jonah is being. God isn't telling Jonah, hey, you're being incredibly disrespectful. Like he is serving him and inviting him to be a little bit curious about this incredible anger that he has. And then this happens, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for it to be burned to the ground. He's like, I would like to see that. That's what he's waiting for. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. You kind of have to appreciate Jonah's commitment to his own comfort. Um, he's all about it. And there's some layers of meaning to that. What is the vine? Does it represent the nation of Israel? Does it represent the temple that was destroyed and then rebuilt and then destroyed again? Possibly, probably. I think it represents all those things. But the point of the story here is that all Jonah sees, all he can look at, all that is in his sight and his vision is his own condition. He wants God to be his personal Savior, and that's it. That's the extent of it. It's all he's focused on. And so when God miraculously provides a little bit of temporary comfort from the heat and then it ends, he is in no way thankful for that miracle. He is furious that the blessing wasn't permanent. That's all he cares about. So God steps in, serving Jonah, asks him another question. But God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant. It is, he says, and I'm so angry I wish I was dead. Um, <laughs> can I, this is not the point of the sermon, but I just, this is just an observation. Perhaps we have severely underestimated how patient God is with us, right? I mean, like this is a lot. And God just hangs in there. He's like, yeah, I know, yeah. Um, 
Before we dismiss Jonah as a petulant child, privileged child who just wants everything his way, like we do need to see ourselves a little bit in Jonah, and I understand that probably none of you good people would ever be this disrespectful in your prayers to God. Um, but nevertheless, I think all of us have gotten angry at God for, ca- for not catering to what we want, and I think when we do, in God's eyes, no matter how polite we are, it's probably just as ugly as this moment was with Jonah. So God asked him one more question. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, sprang up overnight, died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand or their right hand from their left and also many animals? Question mark end of story. Like, that's, the, that's it. That's the end of this book, this book of prophecy. It ends with this question, should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh? That's the question that God is asking His people, asking us. We said this in week one, God's plan, it is not about us. God's plan is also not about our nation. God's plan is about redeeming the whole world that, by the way, belongs to Him, right? And so he's serving Jonah with this question. He's saying, hey, this world that belongs to me, isn't it right for me to care about everyone on this earth? Like, isn't that right? And follow up, Jonah, is your anger right that you don't always get preferential treatment from me all the time? Is that, like, is that right to have anger over that? Man, this is just the first of the prophets, but I tell you, these guys, they're pretty relevant. It was 2,900 years later. We're still struggling with these same things. It's not like we got it figured out. We should never look back on like former us, all those uh, Neanderthals back 2,000 years ago. What were they thinking? Like, this is still us. We just have fancier toys. This book is brilliant. It's provocative. It's fascinating. It hits us where we live as God's people. Um, I was thinking these last couple of weeks about how do you end this prophetic book that ends with a question? I thought this, why don't I just ask us a few questions collectively that this uh, story really has provoked in me, um, and we'll wrap it up that way. And I, I want to encourage you, hey, this probably has provoked some questions in your heart. So share those. Share those with your friends, neighbors. I'd love to hear them too. But these are three questions that in my heart are provoked by this story. So here's the first one. This is a hard one, but I think we've got to think about this. Have we fallen in love with temporary shade? You know what I'm saying? Have we fallen in love with temporary shade? Let me explain. God, He brings into our life all sorts of good things. Um, But most of the good things that we experience on this earth are not permanent. So we see with Jonah, he had this vine, he had the shade for one day, and it was great. God brought the shade because he loved Jonah, but then God also brought the shade to an end. And we experience moments like that in our life all the time. We have moments of uh, seasons of good health, or we have seasons of financial abundance, or we have seasons where we're very close with friends and family, and we feel very supported, or we feel very successful and effective in our job or in our ministry. And God gives us those seasons, that shady time, so that we can enjoy it. I think that's why God gave Jonah the shade, so he could enjoy it. It's shade. It's great. Enjoy it. But here's the thing. The good things in this life 
are not permanent, right? The goodness of God in the next life will be permanent, but in this life, all of the good stuff is temporary. And so when the shade ends because of the brokenness of our world, like we are left in our souls with this deep longing for what we were always intended to be and this longing for the goodness of the shade that God has provided. We want it to come back and we want it to never go. The sin of Jonah, which was also the sin of the entire nation of Israel, which is often the sin, I would say, of God's people, is they were so focused on getting the shade back that they didn't see the amazing, huge, new thing that God was doing. So the Israelites, they wanted Israel to go back to the greatness that they used to have, right? The good old days. Meanwhile, God's like, no, no, no. I want to use you in the redemption of every pagan nation on earth. That's my plan. Could we do that thing together? No, you just see the old thing that you used to be? That's all the Israelites could see. It's like, man, remember those good old days when Solomon was the king? Man, people respected us. We were pretty affluent. Like, we knew what we were doing. Nobody attacked us ever. We were secure. We had money. We had all that sort of stuff. That's what we need to get back to is those days. That's how they thought. Now we have these stupid Assyrians, these immoral, ungodly Assyrians we have to deal with. But let's go back to the shady times when we had it so good and God's saying to them, no, 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 like those days are done. I want you to look at the amazing opportunity that I have placed in front of you right now. An opportunity to be involved in the redemption of the, the superpower of the world, Assyria. But they were so enraptured and so in love with the shade they experienced once that they couldn't move forward with God. That was their sin. I think here's the question for each of us and for us collectively as God's people. Have you fallen in love with temporary shade somewhere in your life? You know, when God gives us a little bit of shade, something good, it gives us something for a temporary amount of time, we should fully enjoy it. We should experience it as the love of God for us. We should probably realize that there's a lot of other people who do with a lot less shade than we have, but we should not fall in love with the shade because we know it's temporary. We should fall in love with the God who provides the shade, not the shade itself. And when that shade ends, we should grieve it because it's real loss and it is the reminder that despite having God in our lives, we're still pretty far from Eden, right? And so we should grieve that loss. We should realize that there's coming a day when the good things of God will never end, but then we should look for the new thing that God is doing and join that thing instead of trying to get back that shade. And I think, like I just read this and it's hard, it, like this is a hard question for me to wrestle with, but I think God is inviting us to just be curious about this truth. Has God given you something that you are holding on to so tightly that it's keeping you from seeing the new thing that he's doing? Like, is there something good in your past that is keeping you from stepping into the new thing? Like, do you just need to, to grieve that that thing is over? It was good. It's, it's gone. It's not coming back. Now, God, what is the next thing in the new thing that you have? Have you fallen in love with the shade? Are you worshiping the shade or are you worshiping the God who provides the shade? Here's a second question. 
This story makes me curious about this question. Uh, We've kind of talked about this before, but just simply, are you caring about the things God wants you to care about? Now, that question cuts two ways. Let me talk about the first one. We've kind of talked about this. God wants to lift our eyes from our agenda to his agenda. Um, Jonah's never able to do that. Jonah makes himself miserable because he cannot embrace the agenda of God, right? And in our spiritual life, like this is true for all of us, if there is not a swapping of agendas where we say, these were all the things that I want, God, I'm going to actually pursue the things that you're after. If we don't swap agendas with God, we are going to create in our lives spiritual misery. Like a significant amount of the disappointment that we feel spiritually and the frustration that we feel is because we cannot get God to care about the things we think he should care about, right? So there has to be that swapping of agendas. He cares about us so deeply, he is not going to embrace our short-sighted agenda for our own lives. He's going to constantly point us to the bigger thing, try to woo us to his agenda, try to woo us to the thing that ultimately will only satisfy our soul. And the problem with with our agenda is not that it's so bad. The problem with our agenda is that it ultimately doesn't have the power to satisfy our soul the way the agenda of the living God does. And so he's persistent in trying to coax us into his agenda so that we swap our agenda for his. So the first question, the first way to take this question is, are you caring about the things that God wants you to care about? Have you swapped your agenda? Or are you actively looking for ways to swap your agenda? But as soon as I wrote that question, I realized it cuts another way. Here's another way to interpret this. Caring about the things God wants you to care about, that does not mean you care about everything. It's not what it means. That wasn't the answer for Jonah. That isn't the answer for us. God did not ask Jonah to save Nineveh, right? That was God's job. God was going to be the savior of Nineveh. God just wanted Jonah to show up and prophesy. That's all he asked him to do, this one very specific thing. And what's amazing about following God is he cares about everything and everyone so we don't have to because we're not God. We don't have that capacity. We just have to care about the things he asks us to care about. Now, I I say that, but I also think we have to acknowledge the place that we find ourselves in history. Um, So from a historical perspective, like we have to acknowledge that the world is getting objectively better. Like anyone who says it doesn't has not studied history because the ancient world was a horrific freak show of trauma all the time. It was horrible, right? Horrible. Um, And the world has gotten substantially better in a handful of ways. One of the ways that that has happened is there's been a revolution in communication so that now we can stay connected to people over great distances. So you can stay connected to a loved one even if you don't live within walking distance to them. And that is a relatively new thing in human history. It has been a game changer. It has impacted health, global health, and justice, and economic prosperity, so many things. And if we just go back 100 years... Like there are people who are still alive, who are still alive who lived then. Uh, we could not communicate across the globe like we do right now. It was incredibly difficult. So this has happened in the last hundred years. This dramatic revelation or revolution in communication. But the downside of that for all of us that we're living in is this: we have the capacity to see every horrific event that happens on the globe in real time. Prior generations did not live with that capacity, but we have that. And while the world is better objectively, there is still a lot of horrific, unjust, 
tragic things happening in our world. And so what it means for us as the people of God in this moment in history, like we want to care about the things God cares about, swap our agenda for his, but we also don't want to care about things that he never asked us to care about because he is the sovereign God and we are not. What it means for us is more than ever before, God's people have to be very clear on this fact. We are not the savior, right? We are not the savior. Like we are not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. In his sovereignty, he accounts for human suffering wherever it happens. He sees all of it. He's always seen all of it. And God is not asking you and I to do something about every single thing that we see. He's just not, right? He didn't ask Jonah to do something about everything. He's not asking us. And so when there's something that comes across our phone and we look at it and we're like, that is horrific. And I know my God, the God who loves people, cares deeply about that. We then have to stop and ask, God, are you asking me to do something about this? Have you given me the capability of doing something about it? Are you inviting me into this? And sometimes trusting our Savior, trusting God's sovereignty, means you don't do something about everything you see. You only do something about the things that he leads you to do something about. And so caring about what God cares about means we have to engage in this constant listening of God. What are you asking me to do? What is mine to do? And what is yours to do? We weren't meant to take action on everything. Embracing his agenda just means we're constantly asking that question, God, what is mine to do? Does that make sense? And we can apply that to international tragedies, but I also would say this, that needs to be applied on the micro level in our homes, right? Not everything that you see as something that is not as it should be is an invitation from God to do something about it. Now, some of it is, and I'm certainly not encouraging anyone to just go home and say, well, I don't have to do anything. No, God is calling you to something. The question that we need to ask is, what is the something he's calling me to? Not all the things, right? He is the savior of the world, so we don't have to be. We just have to do what he asks. Are you caring about what he is asking you to care about? One last question. Um, I'll close with this one. I, I, I find this picture of God like just fascinating. Like Jonah chapter four, it has grown to be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This gracious and compassionate God who gets yelled at by his prophets. Um, and who asks really good questions, really poignant questions. Um, I told you at the beginning of this study that Jonah is not about fish, it is about God. So I want to end there. One last question. Are you making space for God's questions in your life? Are you making space for God's questions in your life? Are you assuming he's got a question for you? And are you making space for those questions? You know, what this chapter really reminds me of, um, and I've talked about this before, I, uh, I go every month to a wonderful Christian therapist who I just have learned so much from. Uh, I always talk about therapy in a positive way because I think we need to normalize that and uh, talk about how it's been so healing for me, and it really has. But if you've been to therapy, you will understand this. Good therapy is deeply frustrating, Right? It can be incredibly frustrating because you go to a therapist, like just walking in the door is an admission. There is something in my life that I cannot figure out. And that is frustrating. Maybe not to everyone, but it is deeply frustrating to me. So I go to my therapist's office and I'll be like, here's what I think and here's how I feel. And I I don't know why I did that. That is not how I talk to my therapist. Although, (laughs) 
you can talk to therapists that way. It's okay. They, they're very accepting people. But anyway, so I, I'm like, this is what I think. This is what I feel. Um, and I'm paying him to challenge what I think. Only he's a good therapist. He's not like, well, Jonathan, that's untrue. This is the truth. Let me just tell you what's true. He never does that. He does stuff that frustrates me deeply like, huh, well, you know, I wonder if together we couldn't just be curious about why you feel that way. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm paying. Like, just tell me why I feel that way and we'll fix it. Like, just, right? Uh, but that's not what he does. Here's what I've learned from sitting across from this man. Um, it, it, it's an encounter with God. It's not just an encounter with this man. Um, I have needed my whole life to meet the God who asks me questions. I have needed my whole life to meet the God who invites me to be curious about what is happening inside of me. And I have found far more power to change my life out of that curiosity than I ever have out of somebody telling me what to do. That's what God's doing with Jonah. I think that if you read this story, I think like from like a mental health perspective, like we would all say this, I don't think Jonah understands why he's angry. God asks him multiple times. He's like, yes, <laughs> I get it. I, it. I'm right to be angry. And I think God's like, but are you? Where is that coming from, Jonah? This anger that I have mercy. What is that about? I think he wants him to be curious for a minute. Why am I so angry? Why am I so resistant to what God is trying to do for other humans? I see Jesus do this a lot, like with his questions. And what's interesting to me is sometimes as God's people, we think, well, church should be a place where they tell you the truth. Maybe not. Maybe what would reflect the personality of our God is if you left church every day with an unanswerable question that you need to ponder for a few months. Um, regardless, I, I think this is true. If I can presume to speak for God, God right now wants to ask you some questions. Like because he loves you, because he really wants to serve you. He sees you. He sees your heart, and he wants to ask you some questions. There's something that he is trying to invite you to be curious about, and it is something that you think, just like Jonah did, you have figured out. And God's saying, but do you? Can, can I just ask a question about that? And I think that the question is, are you making space for those questions? I gave you a couple options. Maybe those are the questions God's asking you. Maybe those are the wrong ones. I just think we need to pause and realize this. God is not just a telling God. And if we approach God all the time, what's true, what's true, what's true? Um, at some point, we have to slow down long enough for God to ask us the questions we've been dodging our whole life. And that's what I think he's doing here with Jonah. If you want to grow, if you want to hear his voice, you have to make space for those questions. The prophets have a lot of information and they tell us a lot of true things, but they also lead us to the right questions. So do you know what God is asking of you in your life and are you making space for those questions? So God, we come to you today curious. God, we're curious. What is that thing that you know about us that we don't know about ourselves? That thing that we think we have figured out 
but that you'd like to ask us a few things about. God, I, I come to you just, maybe for some of us, it is literally what you asked Jonah. What is your anger about? Where is that anger coming from? And you're inviting us to be curious even about the anger that has been in our hearts since before we can remember. Whatever it is, Lord, I just, I, I pray that you'd be gracious to us, that you'd open us up, that you'd ask the right questions and that you'd get through to us about those things that we think we know that maybe we need to slow down a little bit and sit with. God, thank you for caring about us enough to not just hit us over the head with truth constantly. Thank you for designing us to be curious and to discover truth with you. In your name I pray, amen. Hey, I want to uh, do one more thing. I know that typically I pray and I walk off and that's the end of it, but here's a curveball. Let me throw one more thing at you. Um, I, I talk about counseling and therapy and that sort of stuff a fair amount, or I don't know if it's a fair amount. I try to talk about it every few months. Uh, I think that it is possibly important, and I know this is maybe something that we don't all agree on. Some of you might be like, I'm never going to therapy. Some of you may have had a bad experience in therapy. Some of you may be wondering right now, maybe I need to go to therapy. Um, I want to recommend something to you, and I just want to, would you just trust me and maybe try this? If you have any questions about therapy or why it would be good for a Christ follower to do, there's a great podcast uh, called The Place We Find Ourselves. Um, is that what it's called? Yes. The Place We Find Ourselves podcast. There's a therapist up in Fort Collins who does this. I don't know him. I'm not like supporting him, but this is a great episode. Episode one of The Place We Find Ourselves podcast is called Why Engaging Your Story is the Best Thing That You Can Do for Your Brain. And if you've ever wondered, what is this thing about and how could it be positive for us to go to therapy? Uh, this would be a good place to start. You don't even have to go to therapy. You can just listen to this on your own and think about it and see if God is not sparking something in you. See if this doesn't spark a little bit of curiosity about some things maybe that you've never really asked yourself. Um, and it might lead you to therapy. If you do say, hey, I, I want to step out into that. We have some resources online that can help you find that. But the premise is this, that this God, he wants to ask you something. He's eager to talk to you about something, and it's a dialogue. It's question-based. So this might be a way to unlock that. Let's go to him together.